Hello again. If you keep your Bible open there at Acts 14 and your outline, uh, we're going to get into this chapter. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we uh, open up your word and, and read through it chapter by chapter, we thank you uh, that you speak to us. We thank you that your truth is made clear and that the good news of Jesus uh, encourages us and shows us your ways. Uh, please convict us of the truth of your words today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to start with some divisive issues. These are some huge issues uh, that have been debate, debated in families, in friendship circles, uh, in online forums for decades. Uh, the first divisive issue is cats or dogs. Uh, are cats better or are dogs better? Uh, show of hands for cats. Who likes cats better? Oh, very few. Who likes dogs better? Oh, okay, so dogs win, but it's a divisive issue, isn't it? There we go. Our second divisive issue is Coke or Pepsi. Uh, show of hands for Coke. Yeah, I thought so. Show of hands for Pepsi. Well, there you go, just a few. Uh, but clearly, uh, it's a divisive issue and Coke is better. Uh, but anyway... Um, <laughs> The third divisive issue that I want to share with you is actually the biggest of all. Uh, does the toilet roll go over or does it go under? Maybe there's some people here who are like, who knows, I don't care. Uh, I won't get a show of hands on this one, it's just too divisive. Uh, but I did do some research on this. The statistics that I read said this, apparently 70% of people prefer it to go over uh, and then 20% of people get agitated if it's the wrong way. Uh, I think I'm included in that. 19% uh, of people admitted to changing the direction in someone else's house. <laughs> Maybe you're so bold to do that. What we've been seeing in our studies in the book of Acts is that there is nothing more divisive than, not toilet paper, there's nothing more divisive than the gospel of Jesus. Nothing divides humanity more than the gospel of Jesus, the news that he has risen from the dead. It has divided the nations. So let's think about what we've seen recently in the book of Acts uh, to help us get our bearings. Last week in chapter 13, we saw the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Paul went out on three main missionary journeys to preach the gospel and to plant churches. This is the first one. Last week we saw the first bit of it. Phil took us through Paul's travels from Antioch to Antioch. And I know that sounds confusing. That's because there are multiple Antiochs. Uh, there are several towns called Antioch. There's Syrian Antioch over in the east there. You can see the green circle. That's Paul's home base. That's the church that was his sending church. They're, he's their link missionary, if you like. Paul and Barnabas start their journeys from this church in Antioch. And Phil showed us last week how Paul traveled through Cyprus and then Perga up to the other Antioch to Pisidian Antioch up there. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, and again, the response was people were divided. Many people believed. Many people came to faith and salvation in Jesus. That's what the gospel brings. But what also happened? Persecution. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the people. They chased Paul and Barnabas out of town, and so off they went to the next town, to Iconium. And that's where we start today. So you can see on the outline where we're going. Uh, today we're looking at the second half of Paul's journey, starting with growth and persecution in Iconium. So today Iconium is the, is the city of Konya in Turkey. 
So it's one of the bigger cities in Turkey today, uh, but back then it was part of the bigger area of Galatia. So what happens in Iconium? Well, much the same as in Antioch and everywhere else. There's division. The gospel brings growth and persecution at the same time. Have a look with me at verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. The same thing happened in Iconium. They entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So things rolled out the same as in other towns so far. They rocked up to the Jewish synagogue, to those who should know God and should recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And a great number of people, a multitude of both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jews, they believe. And so straight away the gospel is bearing fruit. The good news of Jesus, it brings growth as people, Jews and Gentiles, believe and turn to the Lord. But straight away, there's also opposition. Just like before, some of the Jews refuse to believe. They refuse to accept that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. Their hearts are hard. They don't like Paul. They don't like the attention that he's getting. And so look at verse 2. They poison the minds of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, against Paul and Barnabas. There's that work of Satan again that we saw in last week's passage. People, uh, People who are bent on turning people away from Jesus, from the gospel. People who are holding them back from hearing about Jesus and being saved. But what you see here is the perseverance of Paul and Barnabas. See, what do they do when the opposition arises? Look at verse 3. They stay for a while, weeks, maybe months, and they speak boldly in reliance on Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? How many of us would give up and move on at the first sign of opposition in that situation? No, Paul and Barnabas, relying on the strength that Jesus provides, relying on him to keep them safe, they keep speaking. They're bold. They don't hold back. And then Jesus himself testifies to the truth of their words, to the truth of the gospel. How does he do that? He does that by granting and allowing Paul and Barnabas to work miracles. Now, we don't know what the miracles were here, but the best bet is healings. Supernatural healings with a word or a touch from Paul or Barnabas. But I wonder if you notice how that sentence is phrased. Look at it. The miracles of Jesus are testimony. The miracles of Paul and Barnabas are Jesus testifying. Testifying to what, verse 3 says, the message or the word of his grace. So think about this. In one sense, every miracle of Jesus that has ever happened is a good and wonderful thing in and of itself. When Jesus healed people, when he heals people here in this passage through the apostles, if he heals people today, then that is a wonderful and beautiful gift from Jesus. It is a wonderful thing. And each miracle impacts the people's lives for good, for better, as Jesus releases people from the power of Satan and the effects of the curse of sin. That's true. All of that is true. We shouldn't deny it. We should rejoice in the miracles of Jesus. But did you notice that the focus isn't really on the miracles? We didn't even know what the miracles were. No, instead, Luke, who wrote Acts, Luke and Paul, they're very clear that the miracles have a greater purpose. The miracles are a testimony to a greater reality. The miracles are witness to the gospel. The miracles are testimony to the message of grace, to the true healing 
of forgiveness of sins, to the true healing of eternal life in Jesus, the miracles are God's stamp of approval that the gospel is true, that the apostles are telling the truth. Now, from time to time, you might encounter someone who claims to be a Christian, but who really says miracles should be happening all the time. Jesus wants you to be healthy, to be well. We should be seeing miracles. But we see here Jesus has a greater concern than that. His concern is that people hear the better and bigger news than those things. To hear the good news and believe in Jesus and receive eternal life, eternal healing when we're raised with Jesus on the last day. That's the message of grace that the miracles point us to. The miracles, as good as they are, they point us to the good news of Jesus, to his grace and kindness in dying and rising for us. They're meant to bring people to faith in that message, to trust in that man, Jesus. And I pray that you know that grace. Do you know that grace? You might be here for the first time. You might be here for years. But do you know the message of grace in Jesus, of his kindness, of forgiveness for your sin, for all your rebellion against God, and that Jesus is now risen and reigns? I pray that you know it. And if you don't, we want to help you find that message, to know it. You're welcome to come and find out more with us. But even the miracles didn't persuade everyone in Iconium. Because now the persecution ramps up. The city is divided on this newfangled teaching of Paul and Barnabas. And so a secret plot is made to ambush Paul and to, to beat him and to stone him to death. But Paul and Barnabas, they find out and they quickly flee to the next city. For Paul, it seems, there's a time to stay and fight and there's a time to flee. So they move on to the towns of Lystra and Derby. So look at verse 7. Are they afraid now that this plot's happened? Do they hold back? Verse 7, no. And there in Lystra and Derby, they kept evangelizing. You see, they don't hold back even after this. They keep sharing the message of grace wherever they go. So we're meant to see here in this chapter the boldness of Paul and Barnabas. Their perseverance. We're meant to see that the good news of Jesus is worth it. It's worth the risk. It's worth the pain, the persecution that they faced. Because it's the message of his grace that grows and bears fruit as people hear it and believe and are given eternal life. Well, that leads us now into the incredible events that happen in Lystra. So Paul and Barnabas, they flee. They go to the next town. And that next town is Lystra in Lyaconia. Uh, this is still in the greater region of Galatia, uh, part of modern-day Turkey. So have a look with me. We're going to spend a bit more time here in this part, and then we'll wrap up after that. There's actually four or so, four or more incredible events that happen in Lystra. And the first is in verse 8. Read along with me. It's uh, deeply encouraging. It says, In Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth, who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. After observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he jumped up and started to walk around. That story speaks for itself, doesn't it? As this lame man who had suffered and struggled all his life, as he hears about the Lord Jesus, the Saviour, the Healer, well, faith began to awaken in his heart. God was at work in this man, and Paul could see it. I wonder if he could see it in the man's eyes or see it in his face as he was eager to hear everything Paul was saying. 
And so Paul, he sees this as a precious opportunity. He can help this man. Well, it's Jesus, really, who can. And he can show everyone listening, just as we've thought about, he can show everyone listening that his message is true, that Jesus is powerful. And so by the power of Jesus, he heals him with a word. Stand upright on your feet. Straight away, the man jumps up. He's dancing around. He's overjoyed. And that leads us to the second extraordinary event. See, the crowd here, after that, make a massive mistake. They misunderstand what Paul has done. Paul wanted to show them the power of Jesus, the Lord of all. Paul wanted to validate the message about Jesus so that people would turn to him and believe in him. But what happens? Basically the opposite of what Paul intended. Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyaconian language, The gods have come down to us in the form of men. And they started to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the main speaker. See, instead of recognizing Jesus as Lord, the people conclude Paul and Barnabas must be the gods, the local gods that they worship, Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods. And so they start this kind of crazed frenzy of worship. The temple of Zeus is just down the road. The priest of Zeus grabs a whole bunch of wreaths and garlands and animals and brings them to Paul and Barnabas to, to sacrifice them to him, to pay homage to them and worship them. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they probably didn't understand the language at first, the local language. And so did they know what was going on? Maybe not. But very soon they catch on and they are just horrified. They are shocked at this is happening. This is the opposite response of what they wanted. And they're so overwhelmed and so desperate that they tear their clothes. In that culture, that, that was how you express great horror or great emotion. And they try to shout over the frenzy and the, and the chaos. Paul rebukes them. But at the same time, he, he takes the chance to preach to them. So look at verse 15 with me. Paul shows why this response is totally wrong. He says, Men, why are you doing these things? Why, we are men also with the same nature as you. That, that's the first reason this is wrong. Paul and Barnabas are just people. They're not gods. Uh, but he goes on, We're men just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now just in those few short words, there's some pretty big things that Paul says. One big thing here he says is that it is good news to turn away from your religion. Did you see what he calls their religion? He calls their worship of Zeus and Hermes, their worship and religious practices, worthless things. Paul isn't. Uh, the Apostle Paul has never been politically correct. He says it's good news to turn away from the religion of your culture, even the religion of your family, and turn to Jesus. This is a, a truth of Scripture that comes up, and here it is in Paul's mouth. That idolatry, that false religions, they are worthless. He drives the point even further home in the rest of that verse. He says, turn away from your worthless religion and gods and turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and everything in them. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there's one living God. That means the rest are dead. There's one God who made everything, not many gods who made different pieces and bits of everything. No, one God made it all. And I just wonder, it makes me think 
uh, about how sometimes we as Christians, how do we feel about the idolatry that we see around us in the world? See, when we, when we travel around, think about this for a moment. If you travel to another country, if you do that, um, and you do the tourist thing, you go around and you see the sites, how do you feel about those places, those temples, those shrines, those idols and the religions that you see around the place? Those tourist attractions that, that are the places to go. Or if you travel somewhere like Europe uh, and where there's just these massive cathedrals and monuments to Jesus, but then inside those buildings, Jesus' word is never listened to and never obeyed. What do you think when you, when you see that? Or, you know, bring it closer to home. What do you think when you go through Westfield, the great temple to the God of money? What do you do when you, how do you feel when you scroll through social media and you just see the worship of the God of self? When you see those expressions of worship, of religion, how does it affect you as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's turned to the living God? This is, this is something I wonder about because sometimes I fear that we don't have a right view of God and his glory and a right view of Jesus as Lord and judge and that would make us then want to turn away from these things, to not appreciate those things that we see in our world like the people of our world do. See, sometimes I think we shouldn't enjoy those tourist attractions because those things, they're tributes to false gods. See, it's not wrong to enjoy to appreciate human ingenuity or invention or skill or art. Those things are wonderful. The scriptures tell us they're gifts from God and part of his grace to us. But when those things are made and used for the worship of false gods, when those things keep people bound by Satan, when those things keep people blind from the good news of Jesus, when those things rob from the glory that the one living God deserves... Shouldn't we shudder like Paul and Barnabas? Shouldn't we tear our clothes? Shouldn't we think these things are worthless? These practices, these beliefs, these idols, these temples. Shouldn't we long for people to come to a knowledge of the truth? Learn about religions if you want. Understand them. Observe them. If you want to engage with people about these things and do it with all humility and patience and grace... Uh, we're sinners who are just trying to help other sinners know God as well. We are not better than anyone else. It is only God's grace that means we know what is true. By all means, explore these things, but have it firm in your mind. These things are worthless. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. We need to grieve for our world where sin and idolatry runs rampant. Look at the way Paul puts it in verse 16. He says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way. That's what the religions of our world are, God allowing humanity to make up their own ways and their own truth and their own gods. But Paul says, and this is another big thing he says in his kind of short, desperate sermon. Look at verse 17. He doesn't just preach bad news, he preaches good news. He says, he, God, did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with good, with food and happiness. See, that last part of his message is that God is still kind to humanity, even though we've turned against him. God testifies that he exists by the good that he does for humanity. He sends rain on the earth and the crops grow 
and people can eat. And there is happiness in the world. See, our world is dark. It's a difficult place. But amazingly, God does give good things to humanity, despite our rejection of him. Humanity lives and thrives only because God is kind and provides. So this is Paul saying, those things you thought came from Zeus and Hermes, they actually come from the one true and living God. He made everything and gives you all good things. Turn to him. Don't worship them. Don't bow down to us. Turn to Jesus. But look at verse 18. Paul and Barnabas, they can barely stop the crowd. And then the next incredible thing happens. This story is, is mind-blowing, I think. Another opposite event happens. They go from worshipping Paul to killing him. Look at verse 19. The Jews who, who had plotted to kill him before in the previous towns, they chase him to Lystra. They get the crowds in an even bigger frenzy and then they pelt stones at Paul. That's what they think he deserves for, for speaking this message of grace. They don't want Paul and this Jesus competing with them. So they batter his body until they think he's dead. They toss him out, job done, or so they think, because another incredible thing happens in Lystra. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, After the disciples surrounded him, his body still and lifeless, all of a sudden he got up. He went back into the town, the very town he was stoned in, and then the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. See, I think this is meant to read as another miracle of Jesus. Maybe Paul did survive the stoning, but how, how could he get up and go for a few days' walk the very next day to the next town? This is a miracle, I think. But even if it's not a miracle, well, at least we're meant to see Paul's perseverance, his determination. The people of Derby need to hear about Jesus. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go. So he keeps going. We're meant to see the perseverance of Paul. And more than that, we're meant to see the power of the gospel. That was what motivated Paul. That was the message that would bear fruit in the town that he went to next. That was his motivation for more people to know Jesus. So then Luke tells us really, really briefly about the story of him returning, the return journey to Antioch. We won't look at it now. You can read it for yourself later. But what we see is Paul and Barnabas, they, they loop back through the towns. The towns where they've just been persecuted, they loop back and they encourage the new churches they've planted. And then they head back home to home in Antioch, over in the east there. And as we bring it together and wrap it up, well, I think there's two things we can draw out from this chapter and, and those last few verses as well. See, what should we take from this chapter, having explored it? There's two things I think we can do to live in light of this chapter. Two big things. Number one, this chapter encourages us to rejoice in God's work and the gospel of grace. Phil said it last week, I challenge you not to be excited about this. If you love the Lord Jesus, if you love his gospel, the message of his grace, then rejoice that his message is powerful to save. That though it divides, people come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Praise God that he worked in those towns and people turned and believed and praise God that he still does that work today. And we can do that in a thousand, way, a thousand ways, rejoice in these things. But look at verse 27. It shows us a particular way we can do that. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, After Paul and Barnabas arrived back home to Antioch, they gathered the church together. They reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door to faith to the Gentiles. 
Did you know that it's actually verses like this? It's the reason why we have link missionaries with CMS, the Church Missionary Society. And did you know that that the reason our missionaries come back every three years and we hear from them and we pray for them is actually because of verses just like this one. Because of the pattern we see here. The whole church gathered to hear what God had done through Paul and Barnabas on their journey to rejoice and thank God. And so I think this is a great encouragement. A great encouragement to to have that same zeal when our missionaries return. When we get to support and hear from them. In a few weeks' time, we're going to hear from Lama, our brand new CMS missionary. We're going to send him to proclaim Jesus in Vietnam. Can I urge you? Please don't think, oh, that mission night that's on with Lama, I can miss that one. It's, you know, it's not as important as the normal Bible study that happens or whatever. Uh, no, don't do that. No, rejoice in God's work instead. It's the job, it's the joy of the church to support those who are sent out to proclaim Jesus. When we get the chance to hear from our missionaries and support them, grab that opportunity. Let's be there to rejoice with them in God's work. Rejoicing in God's work, that's what this chapter encourages us in. But there's one more thing that it shows us to do, and that's to persevere through persecution. Just look at verse 22 with me. Uh, As Paul and Barnabas looped back through the towns, this is what they did. They strengthened the disciples by encouraging them to continue in faith and by telling them it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom. All the trouble that Paul had just faced, he'd just been stoned and left for dead. That's the trouble that he's talking about. But he says it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. Keep going in your faith. Keep going through those struggles, he said to them. The message of grace is good enough to hold on to. Persevere in faith. Keep going despite the persecution or the danger. What can man do to you if Jesus is with you? And I think this chapter also helps us to know that we should persevere in speaking. That's what we see Paul and Barnabas doing. Boldly speaking, evangelizing, proclaiming the good news of Jesus wherever they went, whatever they faced. And then God opens the door of faith to people who hear in every place and people turn to Jesus. Shouldn't we be stirred up to do the same? How can we not? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we praise you for the example of Paul and Barnabas. Please strengthen our trust in the Lord Jesus and our perseverance through the struggles that we might face, that we might continue holding on to the message of grace and that we might continue opening our mouths to give you glory and rejoice in Jesus and share him with others. And we pray that you'd strengthen us for this in Jesus' name. Amen.